which was in Mark's Gospel, and Mark chapter 7, and verse 24. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Okay, maybe we look right. We're going to be talking about crossing boundaries and uh, how the gospel helps us to do that so that we don't just stick in our cozy wee group and so on. I wonder what you'd feel like if you went to a church and the, uh, on one side, on this side of the church, sat the black people and on this side sat the white people. You would not be very impressed. Or if you were in a church and if we did what they did in the Jewish synagogue, in fact, we'll try this one. All the men stay downstairs. All the women, you're up in the balcony. That's, uh, we could try that one. It, again, it doesn't kind of give the right impression, does it? In, in one of the Gospels, in James, not the Gospels, one of the letters, James, James talks about how the really wealthy people got to sit at the front. We give you a, a seat of honor. We said, you're, if you're Bill Gates, you can come and sit up here on the throne, at the front here, and that's fine. But if you were a down and out or an alcoholic, well, you can manage just at the back, but not on the comfortable couches because we wouldn't allow that. So if you had any of that, you'd think this would be absolutely awful. So we have to deal with those kinds of barriers. There are barriers. That the, what the Christian church does very often is the Christian church says, well, in order to reach out to people, what we will do is we'll create churches that are for different groups of people. We'll have a church for black people, a church for white people, a church for middle class people, a church for working class people, a church for the poor, and so on. And we'll have a youth church, and then we'll have a church for older people. It's not good. It's not the way it should be. So tonight I'm going to talk about that a bit, but we're going to have to practice what we preach. So I'm going to take some of you guys from here, because you basically all look relatively young and student-y, and I'm going to shift some of you over here, and we're going to do a kind of musical chairs, but not to Sam's, we're just not even to music, actually. Uh, we're going to shift around a wee bit. I'm going to pick on some of you who I know are not shy. Okay, and I'll do it over here. And basically, if I name you um, or point to you and say, hey, you with the super formula oil, David, sorry, <laughs> that you are going to be named, so be prepared. Uh, I want you to shift uh, to somewhere else besides someone perhaps you don't really know that well or, um, and introduce yourself to them. And uh, if you have to move someone out, if you have to kick someone out, that's fine. They then have to shift. So we'll just keep going until we mix it up a wee bit. So um, let's just take Kate, David, Stephanie, you three for a start. You shift. And uh, Bev, you can smile, and Sarah, because you're shifting too, and so is Amy. So you can you three shift, go and find somewhere else. I'm going to get this Bev, that, that Bev to shift. I'm going to get Annabelle to shift, please, the two Bevs. Uh, I'm going to get Hugh Henderson to shift because we need to get uh, some older people over here. Sorry. <laughs> um, I need uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Miller, please, some more mature people. Can you go and sit in with some of these younger people? And Sarah Cathcart and Emma Jane, can you two move over here, please? Give the Millers a space to go to. Okay. Uh, let's see who else we can shift around. Uh, Ian, I want you to move, please. Can you shift over here? And uh, we'll take... Uh, Claire and Dave, can you two go up there? You'll go in the back row, where, which is always commandeered by the older people. They should not sit in the back. So can you shift as well? Make sure you introduce yourself to the people around you. Robert and Linda, can you come and join over here, please? Perhaps even down at the very front. I don't care. 
okay? I think that's probably sufficient and you can, okay? Now, the idea will be, and you need to think about this as well when we, when we you know, people are coming into church, think about what it's like if you come into a church and you've never ever been there before. I hear this from people, they say, oh, the church is not for people like me. And it depends what they mean. It's, and think how awkward it can be. I, I, we went to a church in uh, West Jackson, Mississippi, and it was an African-American church. And I think, I might be right in saying myself and Annabelle and uh, Terry Carlton, we were the only white people amongst 400 people. It did feel really weird. So that, that was really good for me because it helped me realize what it must be like if you were the only Asian or the only black person with a, a whole bunch of white people. Or it's not just about color, it's about um, gender. It's about, I mean, for us today, uh, example up at the manse, I was the only man there. I just felt so lonely with all these, surrounded by all these women. Um, sometimes I remember a guy coming into the church here and saying, uh, I'm probably the only working man here which wasn't true because his idea was that if you were a doctor or a teacher or something, you weren't really working. Um, but I introduced him to some people who were working. Or someone might come in and say, we're going to be talking about the youth work, and here's a problem. What if you're a teenager and you go into a church and you're the only teenager? For me, that's not a problem if the church is friendly and open and doesn't have those kind of barriers. Um, uh, our two oldest kids, Andrew and Becky, they grew up in this church, and for the whole of the time that they were in this church as teenagers, there were no other teenagers. But did it matter? No, because people cared and, and, and spoke to them and so on, and you, you share together. Or it might be that you would come into this church, I've heard someone come in and say, oh, I'm the only old person. And it's, it seems kind of strange. Well, you've got to think about how the Christian gospel, what I'm going to say tonight as we look at from this, is how the gospel crosses all these barriers, and we have to make sure that we do. I know it can be really embarrassing. I'm an incredibly shy person, and I am. I actually genuinely am a shy person. This is just, if any of you, more of you raise your eyebrows, you're in real trouble. I'll name you if you raise your eyebrows. Um, but it is, uh, and I remember when I was in Edinburgh and Buccleuch, uh, church down in Edinburgh as a student and going up to a lady and I thought I've got to speak to somebody because nobody was speaking to me and that's just really sad and so I thought I've got to speak to somebody so I thought I can't if I go and speak to a, a younger girl she'll think I'm trying to chat her up so I'm not going to do that so I thought I'll go and speak to an older woman and there's an older woman on her side I said are, are you a visitor here I've been coming here for 54 years <laughs> oh ouch so um we anyway, we got on fine, and you'd be amazed. You speak to somebody who's different and welcome people, but, but even within the church, you know, crisscross over, speak to different people, sit in a different place occasionally, get to know people. That's one of the good things of the fellowship groups. Now, the passage that we're looking at deals with one of the major criticisms that's made by many non-Christians of the Christian faith, and it goes like this that we are intolerant and exclusive. I find it ironic because I find that our, our culture is largely exclusive and intolerant towards Christians. But I want to say this. 
as Christians, we should be tolerant and inclusive. We should never exclude people because of their religious background, their gender, their race, their social background. And what I mean by that is this. We believe that the gospel is for everybody. It's good news for all. And the two stories that we've read illustrate that. Um, Jesus has been speaking about tradition and the danger of nullifying the word of God by our tradition. Here, Jesus puts his own words into practice by going against the tradition of his culture. And if you look at verse 24, it's, this is the story of the faith of a pagan woman. He goes to Tyre. It's foreign country. It's the country of a former enemy. It's like you're from Northern Ireland and you go into Southern Ireland, perhaps. Or maybe you might want to think Scotland going into England or, or whatever. It was a famous harbor and fort. The um, port was known for its Phoenician sailors. They discovered the way to sail. Because before the Phoenicians, how people sailed was they'd go along the coast. And if they saw, as soon as they moved away from the coast, how do you know where to go? You know, if you wanted to get to Norway, how would you know where you were? Just point your boat and go. Um, you'd probably get lost. So until the Phoenicians, people traveled by, if they went by boat, you could always see the shoreline. But the Phoenicians discovered another way to navigate. Does anyone have a guess at what that would be, by the way? Stars, yeah. The stars, that's right. They looked at, I actually have no idea how that works. But they were able to navigate by the stars. And as a result, the Phoenicians sailed all over the Mediterranean, but not the Mediterranean. They, there's plenty of evidence that they sailed to Britain and probably even up the River Tay. They probably sailed past here and visited and thought, no, this is too cold, we're out of here, we're going back to Israel. Jesus goes into this area, he seems to have been alone, and he wanted to be alone. He did not, look at verse uh, 24, he could not keep his presence secret. He didn't want anyone to know it. But a Greek Syrophoenician woman came to him. Now, the word Greek here in Mark's gospel, it usually means just somebody who's not Jewish. There were the Jews and the Greeks. So if you read in 1 Corinthians, for example, Jews look for wisdom, uh, sorry, Jews look for a sign, Greeks look for wisdom. When it says Greeks, it doesn't mean from the, the country Greece, it just means all non-Jews uh, civilized. There's bar they divided the world into three, barbarians, Scythians who were like moshers and punks uh, of their day, and um, <coughs> Greeks and the Jews, of course. She was a pagan. She was not Jewish. She did not believe in Yahweh and Jehovah. In terms of the rules of the Jewish culture, she was breaking all the rules. She is uh, unclean. She is involved in pagan worship. Possibly as a result of this, her daughter is demon-possessed. She had a little daughter who was possessed by an evil spirit. And no, that's not talking about an illness. That is talking about a spiritual condition. There are such, a thing, there are such things as evil spirits. So what does Jesus do when he's approached by this woman who is pagan? She's a woman. He's not supposed to speak to her. She's got a demon-possessed daughter because she's involved in pagan worship. That may, may have been the reason. He himself has gone away to get some peace. He is being opposed by the religious leaders. 
He's been doubted by his own family. He's been followed by a crowd who are just miracle seekers and who are going to him basically saying, do another one. He's not understood by his disciples. He's only recognized by evil spirits. What does he do? Well, look at what he does. She begs Jesus to drive the demon. And he gives her an extraordinary answer, which is incredibly harsh. First, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, he's talking about the priority of the Jews. And he could be saying, well, I've got to go to the Jews first. But he quotes a popular proverb among the Jews, and it is a, a pretty horrendous proverb. Because it means a dog in this sense meant a shameless and audacious woman. It's a term that we might use for a female dog today. To the Jews, it was a term of contempt. Don't give dogs what is holy. And it seems as though Jesus is saying to this woman something which is incredibly, actually insulting and, and provocative. But it's not quite as straightforward as that because what he does with this proverb is he changes it round. First of all, he removes the word for dog that was normally used in the proverb, which is basically a swear word, and he replaces it with the word for a household pet. It's still not very complimentary. But he does offer her some degree of hope. The other thing about this, of course, is we have no idea of the tone in which Jesus spoke. So this woman comes to her, and he answers her probably in the way that she would have expected to have been answered. He's, saying to, he's really saying to her, you come here as a pagan woman. Why do you think I would help you? Shouldn't I be helping the Jews first? Is that not what it's supposed to be? Now, you have to be quite careful with this. It's not Jesus saying, go away. He's not doing that at all. Because she then responds, yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her faith is great, and she's very persistent. When I say her faith is great, what I mean is this. She had a recognition of Jesus as being at least a great miracle worker, and probably a lot more than that because she calls him Lord. And for some reason, she grasped and she understood that Jesus is Lord. And she keeps going. She is persistent a quality that we often undervalue. We quickly and easily give up, but we need to be persistent. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I think that Jesus treated her initially in such an offhand way, as far as we can gather, because he's testing her persistent. She is the desperate mother of, desperate chi of a desperate child. It doesn't matter that she's a pagan. It doesn't matter that she's the wrong race, as far as the culture of her time was concerned. She's the desperate mother of a desperate child. And I want to stop and I want to just simply say this. We need to pray for our children. We can't change their hearts. We can't, but we can pray for them. Likewise with our friends. They may not speak to us about God, but we can speak to God about them. There's something about this woman, by the way, that's just that she speaks with wit and perhaps even humor. She accepts what Jesus says, but she argues for more. The little dogs get the crumbs thrown, and literally, she says, by the born ones. The little dogs get the crumbs. The, the, 
the phrase is, we would recognize it in Scots, as bairns. They get the bairns bread. So why can't you bless me? Jesus is not going to be deflected from his main mission, but he's not going to leave that woman. For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. It's a huge event, this, by the way, because it signifies the opening up of the kingdom to the Gentiles. This is Jesus, by this action, doing what he's expressly to state later on, I haven't just come for the Jews. I've come for everybody. The woman was in desperate need. She cast herself completely upon him. She wrestled with him in her believing. Her daughter was healed. And from a distance, he cast out demons without even being there. He didn't need magic cloth or certain things. He just needed Jesus to say the word. He crosses boundaries and barriers of national and religious origin in order to help. He crosses barriers of sex and of tradition. He risks in order to save. And surely our job as Christians, if we're believers in Jesus, is to break down barriers. It's not saying we compromise or give up our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not saying the the pagan worship is okay. Very opposite. It's because we believe and because we trust in Jesus that we can be open and caring and risky and tolerant and inclusive. We cannot be a Christian church and be intolerant. We cannot be a Christian church and be racist. We cannot be a Christian church and be sexist. We cannot be a Christian church and exclude people because our aim is always to include people and the best thing that we can possibly hope for anyone is that they come to know Jesus. Now I'm telling you that, and you must know this, that there are hundreds of these women in Dundee, and men too, who are desperate for their children, who tonight have no idea about Jesus Christ, but what they know is that their children are in great need. They don't know how to teach them. They're trying to discipline them and the children aren't listening. They are desperately concerned that their children are involved in, in, in drugs or uh, sexual promiscuity or whatever. They just don't know what to do. They're in despair. And we have to be people who are genuinely and really and truly concerned about that and do something about it. Not just be the, the Christians who talk, but do something. We've got a, a short meeting afterwards which ties in with this because we're going to be looking at our, our kids' work and so on. What's kids' work for? Why do you do it in a church? Well, we have a big problem because we do it um, for the children who are in the church. Sure, that's, that's one reason and it's an important reason. We do it also with the primary school children to try and reach out. The kids are crossing the school there and we try and do that. But we're also wanting to do it because we've had a number of children who gone through our Monday club, through all the primary school, and have now gone into secondary school, and especially the girls, and we want to do something extra to try and help them. I shouldn't say especially the girls, the boys as well. Absolutely. We want to do something to try and help them, but we don't have the, the time, we don't have the people, we don't have the money, whatever the reason that people say. And so we say, no, no, it's not right 
to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Of course, we don't say that. But that's in reality what our actions mean. And we can't do that. We have got to do everything that we can to try and help people who find themselves in a, where there are children growing up in this city without ever hearing the gospel, which is the ultimate hope for anybody. 35, no, sorry, that's wrong. I think it was 19,000 children started school this, uh, not for the first time, but went back to school. It's a huge, huge number. At one point, I don't know if this is still the case, the statistic I had was that there was 30 to 35,000 children aged 15 and under in this city, and of them, only 5,000 had any connection whatsoever with any church whatsoever, including Roman Catholic, Mormon, and whatever. Where are they going to hear the gospel? They're not going to hear it in school. They're not generally going to hear it in church because they don't come near church. They're not going to hear it on television. They're not going to hear it on the radio. They're not going to read it in the newspapers. We're in a desperate situation with that. And that's one of the barriers that we have got to break down. Verse 31, the disabled. Jesus now travels somewhere else. He heads north to a place called Sidon, then southeast to a place called the Ten Cities. And if I had a map, I'd show you it, but it's really strange. It's like going to Edinburgh from Dundee via Inverness. It's like saying, I'm going to go to Edinburgh, but I'll go up to Inverness first, and that's the route that you went. It's a long journey, this one. It probably took about eight months for Jesus to do it. And uh, as part of that, he meets this man, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. He had an acute physical disability. The word for not being able to talk, for being dumb, is used only two times in the Bible, here and in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Mark knows this. And what Mark is telling us is that this is a, a fulfillment of that prophecy. Again, look what Jesus did. Verse 33, he took him aside, away from the crowd. In some ways, it's more embarrassing to be deaf than blind. We shouldn't discriminate and, you know, say that in terms of, of disability. And there's a whole question about how we use language in that respect. But it is a handicap. There's no question. You're deaf. You can't hear. Sometimes a deaf person knows they cannot hear, but those who are speaking to them do not do so. I mean, have you ever been? I was in a situation once where someone said to someone, what's wrong with you? You're deaf. And they said, yes. <laughs> they couldn't. They were, they were deaf. So Jesus takes him aside, puts his fingers in his ears, spits and touches his tongue. What's he doing? It's sign language. It's what he's doing. He's letting him see what he's doing. He looks up to heaven, the sign of prayer. He groans, the sign of prayer. He speaks his own native language. Epaphtha. All this was done in terms and ways the man could understand. What Jesus is doing here is he's treating the man with respect as a human being. He's aware of his needs. He doesn't treat him as a case, but as a human being, an individual with a special need and a special problem. And that should be a basic principle for us. 
For a short while, I, I did uh, voluntary work for what was then called the Scottish Spastics Council. And every now and then, we'd do an experiment. And it was quite incredible. I would go out in a wheelchair. I would be in the wheelchair, and so one of the other staff would push me. And it was incredible how people would come up to the wheelchair and talk about me to the person who was pushing. Yes, there was a program once called Does He Take Sugar? Can you imagine what that's like? You're going to have a cup of tea at the back here, and, and, and you're in a wheelchair, and someone says, Does he take sugar? Well, he, he has a name for a start, and he can speak, and so on. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's funny how we need to think sometimes about how we treat people. I think one of the good things about modern society uh, has, have been things like the Disability Act. I think it's right that you make access to buildings and do as much as you possibly can. But it's not about people being cases. It's not about people being patients. It's not about people being projects. It's about people being people. And that's what Jesus, that's how Jesus treats this man. And I, I love how in history the Christian church has treated those who are considered by society to be more handicapped, the down and outs, the addict, and all the rest of it, the, the disabled, whatever. Not as, oh look, we're really, really good people and we're doing this for you. Not the kind of does he take sugar approach, but recognizing that everybody is a human being. What a difference it makes to be treated with dignity as a human being. Jesus groans, verse 34. He groans. He looks up to heaven. It's a deep sigh. There's a spiritual struggle going on as well. Here's the problem. People were usually cured through hearing the word, but if you're deaf, you don't hear. The same word is used in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as the sons of God. There's a groaning that goes on in creation. That word is also used in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, where he says, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. We're in this tent. We groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but, but, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. There is a, a groaning that occurs in our lives because of the battle against sin within us, and because of the weakness of our own bodies as well, and we long for them to be renewed, the physical side of that as well. And here, Jesus, with a deep sigh, groans, because this man has, has, has been disabled by this deafness and inability to communicate and to speak. And when he speaks to the man with this word, which means be opened, it happens. By the way, it's a very wide word. It's not just here. It's not just used to mean un, uh, unblocking ears. It's the whole person who's opened up and set free. In other words, Jesus is saying, open up, be free. That's really um, what he's saying. I'm, I have to be speaking at the lunch bar, as I've said on Wednesday, and, and what I have to speak about is being free, being truly free, being really free. 
That's what we have all around us in our culture. People who have this kind of blockage. It's like um, you can have a blockage in your ear, and I speak from experience. Uh, you can have a blockage in your ear. You're, you're aware of not hearing right, might even be irritated or infected, but then the nurse comes along and does that wonderful thing. It's a fantastic feeling, by the way. Get your ears shringed. They're great. Honestly, I love it. Just it goes away, and they get this, and eventually, you know, it all pops out, and you just go, oh, I didn't realize there was that much stuff in there, um, which just reminds me, I've got a wee note. I need to go and get my ears shringed again, but practical Christianity. But you can hear. Everything seems crisp and clear. It's quite incredible. I, I, find, it, I find it quite incredible. You know, go and get my ears shringed. And, wow, I can, this, you know, everything's crisper and brighter and clearer. Well, leave aside that particular illustration. The point is, that's what the Lord does in a spiritual sense. He unblocks our ears. He lets us hear. He opens our heart. What we need is to be opened. What our tendency is, is to close. Our tendency is to to curl up into a ball. Our tendency is to, to be very defensive. We need to be opened. We need Jesus to speak so that we open out as people. He, we need Christ to open our hearts. I think that Jesus Christ, I think it's clear that Jesus Christ did come down to break barriers, that Jesus Christ came to help the desperate and the poor the demon-possessed, and those with no hope. People are amazed. He does all things well, they say. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. When God made the world, Genesis 1, he saw that it was good. When Jesus works, people see that it is good. Sin came in when God made the world and marred it. But now Jesus come, and he's restoring beauty in place of the ugliness of sin. And he does everything well. You never say to Jesus, what are you doing? He does everything well. They are impressed, but they need to be more than impressed. They need to see and understand. It is only Jesus who can unblock the ears of the deaf. There's a sense in which Peter, who recounts this story to Mark, was deaf and dumb. He's acknowledging that. But soon he will hear, and soon he will be able to speak. I believe that what we, ha- what we need is, is the Lord, as I said, to, to open us up so that we can understand, to open our minds, to open our hearts. We are not this closed group of people who are tightly bound and who never reach out except to try and get people to come in to our tight we group. That has not got to be the case. Big test for the Christian Union this week because the danger for the Christian Union is that that you guys just reach out to get people to join the Christian Union. You, you, in effect, look for Christians so that you're the biggest club in the university. But there's 4,500 new students. There's 18,000 students in the University of Dundee and another 5,000 in the University of Aberdeen and a CU that has 150 people. It's pathetic, really, at one level. To reach out is really, really hard. It's really difficult. But we have to do it. We have to overcome the barriers. That's true. Just not just for the the Christian Union. I'm not going to go with the Christian Union. It's true. And in this church, we have to do it. 
You know what our tendency is when we do church planting or our tendency is when we do outreach, when we try and get people to come to church, what do we do? We look for people who are like us. We look for people who are, have the same background or the same ethos or perhaps even are already believers. But we don't want to do that. I don't want to compete with Central Baptist or with The Gate or with Logie and St. John's for people who already go to church. I want to reach the 95% of people in this city who do not go to church. And that means that barriers have to be broken down. So I ask simply as we leave this, as Jesus broke down barriers and boundaries, what will we who profess to be his disciples do? What barriers of discrimination and misunderstanding can we break down through the love of Christ? If you have Muslim neighbors, for example, what do you think of them? Muslims, threat. Or you think, Muslims, we're all the same. What about thinking human beings who need Jesus Christ? And I don't care if they're Muslims. They're human beings who need Jesus Christ, whatever their religious background. What if you've got someone on your closer someone at the bottom of your stairs and they're a threat to you because they're selling dope they make dreadful noise late at night they need Jesus Christ what about if there's people who stay in the house next to you and when they hear that that you're Christian that you go to church that you go to the free church they go oh weirdo and you just don't get invited to dinner parties and things like that the kind of posh, upper-class, pseudo-intellectual who thinks that they know it and you're just an ignorant religious person. You've still got to break down those barriers because they need Jesus Christ. The people that you will go to work with tomorrow, what are all the barriers that are there? They need Jesus Christ. We have to go into enemy territory and to overcome those barriers of hatred and of ignorance by the love of Jesus Christ. Let me say this a little bit about what I try to do in terms of the, the apologetics as Hugh was praying for and so on. People think I do it because I just like arguing. That's true. <laughs> to some degree. I quite like arguing. And I'm telling you, it gives me great pleasure to grind an atheist into the ground. Um, at least at least intellectually and so on but that's not why you do it that really isn't genuinely why you do it I just I happen to believe this I happen to believe if you keep going with people you're not trying to win an argument actually and you're not trying to batter them you're trying to take captive every thought for Jesus Christ and you're trying to introduce them to Jesus and sometimes you have to go into enemy territory to do that. It's not, you don't do it hiding behind a computer desk, sending off messages onto message boards and so on. That's not the main way you do it. The main way you do it is actually meeting with people. So pray for me a week on Monday because I'm going to speak to the Dundee University Atheist Society. And that will be interesting. Very, very interesting. And I'm really looking forward to it. We have to break down barriers. You can keep your... See, we live in a culture where people think in order to break down barriers, you have to agree with everyone. And that's rubbish. And you're not really breaking down barriers, you're just creating other ones. But if, as Christians of all people, we should be able to break down barriers, we should be able to go anywhere and speak to anyone. Why? 
because we love Jesus Christ and because we love what he has made and we know that every human being is made in the image of God. And we don't think that we can convince people. We don't think that we can convert people. But we do know that Christ loves them. That's all that we know. And we seek to communicate that. And that's why I have to repent every time I discriminate against people, every time in my own head I think things about people which make them either less than human or make me put up barriers. I'm wanting all these barriers to come down. The only way that they can really come down is through Jesus Christ. It really is the great message that we have for people. So I don't buy it. When Christians go around saying, come back, I'll, I'll finish with this tolerance, intolerance thing. And you get Christians who think they're being a little bit smart and clever and saying, well, of course we're intolerant and we have to be because we're being faithful for Jesus. Turn that round. Don't let the devil have that word. You don't want to be intolerant. We want to be tolerant, kind, loving, inclusive people who, because we love people, are prepared to take their hatred and their mockery and their spite and to turn the other cheek and to keep praying for them as we saw this morning, keep praying and to, to keep wanting to tell people about Jesus. I, some of you will know I was interviewed by a journalist from the Times, Sunday Times, and uh, he said to me today, he said, David, why do you care? It's just such a great question. He says, what, what does it bother you if somebody says that God doesn't exist? And I, I said to him, I care because it's true. And he says, but it doesn't make any difference to you. I said, no, to me personally, no. Someone saying God doesn't exist, that doesn't change what I believe. But I tell you why I care. Because I think it makes a big difference to them and to many, many others. And I, I want everyone to know Jesus Christ. That's where we are open. That's where we are tolerant. And, I, and I, I ask you to think about it for yourself, but I ask you to pray for us as a church. How do we break down these barriers of discrimination and prejudice and ignorance that exist amongst people, that exist against us as well? But how do we go and we, how do we communicate the simplest and the most glorious message of all? Jesus does actually love you. Jesus gave himself. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you spoke to this Syrophoenician woman. I thank you that though she was a pagan, though her daughter was demon-possessed, though there are so many things that you provoked her, that she answered you straight and that you listened to what she said and your purpose surely was always to heal and to renew. I thank you that we've seen your power at work in, in the man who couldn't hear and couldn't speak. And you delivered him. You opened his ears. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts that we would love, that you would open our minds, that we would understand, that you would open our mouths, that we would speak for you, that you would deliver us from the demonic, that you would deliver us from evil, that you would deliver us from all 
the effects of, of, of sinfulness in our lives that we cling on to, that we would learn to completely and absolutely trust you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would deliver us from prejudice and from ignorance, from judging people by what they wear, by the color of their skin, by their gender, by their social status, by the sins that they commit. Lord, we, we are in no position to judge. We ask that you would help us to do what you did. You so loved the world. You so loved your enemies that you gave your one and only Son. Teach us to give of ourselves that we might reach out. And Lord, I do pray that you would bless the Christian union, that you would give the students, Christian students, that spirit of sacrifice and Dave and Sarah and all the others who are involved in leading that that there would just be a, a, a great anointing and blessing upon them. They, they would be protected. And Lord, we just pray for the young people here. We pray for uh, the teenage boys and girls who are associated with this congregation, the ones we'd like to be, that you would also remove the barriers that prevent them hearing about you or coming to follow you. Lord, grant that we would be an open and inclusive church, where the one thing, perhaps the only thing that binds us all together is that we love Jesus and we want to follow you. For we ask in your name. Amen.